The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, listeners. Happy New Year, and welcome to this week's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. We're recording this episode on a very cold January 5th in Portland, Oregon, just a few days after the last major application deadline for fall 2017. With much of the application process behind us, at least for you seniors, we want to spend much of our show today looking ahead at opportunities in college and beyond. Our finance topic of the day is financial aid for mid-year transfer students. You know who you are, and you won't want to miss that segment coming up at the end of the show. But before that, I'd like you all to get into a pre-professional mindset with me as we discuss two popular postgraduate options, medical school and MBA programs. At College Coach, we connect with thousands of families every year, and I talk to as many as 15 or 20 different students a week during our busiest times of the year. It may come as no surprise to our listeners that many high schoolers are commonly interested in pursuing an undergraduate degree in business or a degree in medicine. But as these students are almost always still in high school, it isn't necessarily the right time to have a full conversation about professional programs since those frequently come after a four-year course of undergraduate study. So why are we talking about it today? Well, We want to be sure that our listeners have a good sense of the timeline for their post-secondary and post-graduate educations, and we want to make sure that everyone with an interest in MBA or MD programs has a sense of what they can do now and through college to better prepare themselves to achieve their goals. So with that long preamble out of the way, I'd like to welcome my first guest to the show. In addition to being one of our wonderful college coach educators, Stacy Raddick is a former associate director of MBA admissions at Columbia University in New York City. Welcome to the show, Stacy. Thanks for having me, Ian. I'm, I'm very glad you're here and, and very interested in talking to you uh, about these MBA programs. Now, a lot of students these days describe an interest in business. I think that means different things for different students, but it touches on a, a huge number of different fields and opportunities. What are some of the things that you can do with a business degree um, if that's something that you choose to pursue in, in college or beyond? Um, I don't think there's any limits on what you can do with a business degree. So it's a great way of thinking about the world. It's a great collection of skills. Um, certainly some students will talk to me about wanting to be an accountant, and there's a direct path to that through a business program. Um, but you're learning the skill sets that you can take with you into a number of industries. So a lot of people going into nonprofit management, for example, might want an MBA um, or marketing or management, kind of the direct management. But there's really um, a broad range of application for the skills learned within an MBA program. Um, and mm-hmm. one of the exciting things, I think, is there's really a great network and exposure within an MBA program. And so while within an MBA program, most students come in with a clear sense of focus, 
and the programs really want you to have a clear sense of focus. Once you get into a program, you realize that there are so many different possible avenues, um, and there is the possibility to explore those avenues and talk to colleagues and talk to people in the industry and get a better sense of what opportunities might be waiting for you on the other side. Yeah, definitely. And so you're sort of you, you you transitioned into talking a little bit about MBA programs as and that's that's a master of business administration. And and correct me if I'm wrong, but the, typically the requirement is that you have a bachelor's degree um, before applying for an MBA program. Is, is that tend to be right? Exactly. Exactly. Okay, Not gotcha. only a bachelor's degree, um, but also work experience. So um, you talked in the introduction about when this might happen. This is not typically a path for students to take right after completion of their undergraduate degree, um, but the experience of an MBA is so much richer if you have a couple of years of work experience before entering the MBA program. Yeah, you know, I I did my master's um, at Stanford, where there's also a a very strong graduate school of business. And there were a number of students who were doing a joint MA MBA um, with the School of Education. And so they were getting both a business degree, but then also a focus in education. And and they all came from industry, uh, usually industry that was connected to education in some way, a charter school system or something along those lines. And that helped them to find this connection to an opportunity to to use their MBA. Um, Now, we work a lot with students coming right out of high school who are looking at college programs. And a lot of institutions offer direct entry business programs for a college freshman um, or maybe a business degree uh, as an undergraduate. What are some of the differences between an undergraduate business degree and the MBA? I think the main difference is depth. Um, With an MBA program, you just go so much deeper into the different areas within business. Um, Mm -hmm. And part of that is really intentional with an undergraduate degree. While there may be an opportunity to specialize in a particular area of business, schools still want their students graduating with exposure to the liberal arts. So most undergraduate business programs will have about a third of the coursework um, in the liberal arts. They're still fulfilling broad requirements and getting exposure in a number of areas. So there's, I would say, more breadth in the undergraduate program and more depth in the graduate level program. Gotcha. I think that that makes sense. And do you find that students that want to study business are more often drawn to one path or another? Is there a necessity for students to go out and look for an undergraduate business degree before they get into an MBA? Uh, Or can they, they find a variety of different pathways to that MBA program? Yeah, there's really a variety of different pathways. And when I was at Columbia, we never had more than a third of our class um, come from business backgrounds at the undergraduate level. Hmm. We really like to see a diversity of experiences. So you have an art history major next to a math major, um, and that can lead to some interesting conversations and interesting ways to view the material. So I don't think that there's any urgency um, on the part of students to go right into an undergraduate program. Some students really like that. Some students are um, attracted to the hands-on nature of an undergraduate program. So I often talk to students who are considering an undergraduate business degree versus economics. And so thinking through the way they like to learn and knowing that economics will be more theoretical and that business will be more practical and that they'll be doing um, marketing plans and reading case studies and working closely with the peers, um, there's some differences there, but certainly there is no requirement to do any kind of undergraduate business major um, prior to obtaining an MBA. And I think there's a lot of benefit to diversifying um, 
with an MBA program, there's often a core. And so students who come from undergraduate business programs may be able to exempt out of a class or two of those core requirements, maybe a core accounting class or a core management class, and replace it with something that's higher level. Um, but in a business mm-hmm. program beyond that, they're still going to have to complete the majority of the core, even if they've done an undergraduate business program. Um, so, I mean, for students who are 100% gung-ho, they know they want to do business, I don't think that there's anything wrong with an undergraduate sure. uh, business degree, but I certainly don't think that there's any must about doing it if you think you want to do business in your future. Yeah, and so this was actually a question. I was just on the phone with a student yesterday, and he was interested in business, um, potentially marketing, and then he was also interested in graphic design. Um, which, you know, were two very different things. And and we got into a a long conversation about questions associated with which of these would be a better pursuit for him in the undergraduate study. And, you know, that's not a question that we even as experts in admission can answer for an individual. It's got to be something that that a student can determine on their own. Um, But what would you say are some of the questions that you would encourage students to consider as they're thinking about business, right, a much more practical, skill-based kind of study versus something that might be more analytical or, or theoretical or, um, you know, just sort of based in um, more of the traditional academic style? Uh, how does a student investigate which is going to be a better fit for them for that four-year degree? Um, I would think about what they've enjoyed most in high school. You know, if they were really active in a club and had a leadership position, did they enjoy running the organization, working with their advisor on the budget, um, going out and setting up the activities? Were they really hands-on in their approach? That may mean they like the more hands-on approach of a business program. If they were really happy, you know, digging through their books, having conversations with their peers about the ideas, um, the business program may not be as exciting to them. So for me, it's really that theory versus practice distinction. Um, it's also a matter of the way that different schools approach their business education. So I would definitely mm-hmm. have them take a really careful look at the website, look at the courses they would be taking, see if that particular program employs the case study method, and that's when they would be exploring a particular real issue in business and going through how you might approach and solve that problem. Does that appeal to them? Um, Thinking through how collaborative the program is. A lot of even undergraduate programs will have some kind of cohort where you go through certain classes with a group of people with whom you become very close and you um, really rely on one another. And so does that interest the student or are they much happier kind of working independently, doing their homework, doing their reading writing a paper. Um, So there's a lot of considerations just in terms of how they learn best and how they enjoy their learning. That's such an important point. And that was one of the the points that we came back to in our discussion yesterday when I was talking to the student and and his mom. And, um, you know, this just this idea of looking at the details for the degree, you know, what do you have to do in order to receive that that degree with that particular major? What are the classes that you have to take and the course descriptions? I think that that's really important. And, you know, we often come back to this question of what's the best school for any given area. And even if you've got a business school that's ranked higher 
than, than another might be, it doesn't necessarily mean that the style that they teach their business program is going to be in alignment with the style that, that you learn best. And so you want to really dig into those details when you start looking at your final list of schools to figure out the way that they administer that business program and whether it's it's going to be a fit for you. Um, I want to go back to this other idea, Stacey, of, of a student who's potentially interested in business but who does a more traditional academic major, maybe it's economics, maybe it's something like art history, as you mentioned, or philosophy. How does a student sort of identify the gap between what they get in that traditional academic major and what it might take for them to get involved in business or apply successfully to an MBA program? How do you build in the experience that's going to look attractive to an MBA admission office? Um, that's a good question. There's a few things I would do. First, I would make sure if it's a major like philosophy or English or history that there's some quantitative exposure on your transcript. So that student may want to take an introduction to accounting class. They may want to take statistics. Um, and that's, I think, for their own knowledge because those courses will be helpful for an MBA program, but it's also to prove to the admissions officer reviewing that transcript um, that there is a good skill set there on the quantitative side because MBAs are very quantitative programs. So that's that's one thing that I would do. Another thing is, and I really encourage this for all students, whether you think you're interested in business or have zero interest in business, um, but taking advantage of a college's resources to find internships because mm-hmm. that's going to help students clarify their path. It's going to help them rule out things in a really low-stakes environment. I mean, you can do a one-semester internship and find that you hate it, and you stick it out for the semester, but you're able to check that off your list and say, okay, that's not for me. And so I think that that's really important um, for the student who's majoring in philosophy but thinks, okay, maybe business down the line will have some practical experiences. And it doesn't have to be, you know, what some students that I speak with in New York think of business is only on Wall Street. That's certainly um, just a, a narrow way of looking at it. They might be mm-hmm. able to work within their own school's development office or work within the budget office at their school or get a job at a small local marketing firm. You know, there's so many different ways to get exposure to the business world. Um, and, and starting, I think, very early in a student's college career and collecting a few different experiences will be essential. Yeah, and I think that even the things that you might hate, you, you could be surprised at the way that it might find become useful later on as you get into a, a certain type of profession or a certain type of field. Like, you know, if you do an internship in marketing that you don't particularly like, but then you find yourself working in an admission office later on in your early career and you have an opportunity to work with the publications for that particular college. Now you can use that marketing experience that you've had or it becomes attractive in terms of a resume uh, bullet item. So there's this benefit that you can get from just engaging with opportunity around you that can be strategic in terms of how it leads to a specific path, but can also be useful just by virtue of showing your engagement and and building different skill sets that you might use later on. Um, I want to get, because you worked in admission uh, for MBA programs, because you work so frequently with students applying for undergraduate programs, um, I wonder if you could tell us just a little bit about the differences between admission to an MBA program versus an undergraduate program, if, if you think that there are any that are significant. 
Sure. So I was actually struck when I started this role by the similarities. There's a lot of reflection required um, for applications to undergraduate programs and also to business school, and that typically comes through in the essays. And so um, similar to the undergraduate experience with MBAs, they, they want people to reflect. They want people to dig deep on why that particular career path is right for them. Um, and so the essays are an important part of both processes. I think mm-hmm. the biggest difference is, one is the relative importance of the transcript. And so for an undergraduate program, transcript, as we know, is, is key. Transcript is the most important document in the application. Um, yes. For a graduate program, I would say even a very highly selective school like Columbia, they're looking for a very strong transcript. But if you applied with a 4.0 and without interesting activities and evidence of leadership, you wouldn't be a very interesting candidate at all. Um, that, you know, a 3.8 to a 4.0 versus applying with a 3.6, I don't think that's going to make a huge difference in the review process, whereas in the undergraduate process, it would make a very big difference for those highly selected schools. So that was eye-opening to me, just that the transcript isn't everything. I would say that the combination of the transcript um, and the GMAT or GRE are, are important, um, but it's not an entirely academic program. And so with the MBA, it just doesn't take prominence in the same way. Um, the other piece that an MBA program is always looking for, which undergraduate programs value, um, but is not center stage, is the evidence of leadership. So MBA programs mm-hmm. are really looking for formal or informal evidence of leadership, and that can come through in a lot of different ways. It can come through professionally. It can come through in college activities. So, you know, continuing in those college activities that are meaningful to students and building up to positions of leadership can be really helpful in an MBA essay um, or doing something informal and bringing a program to a local elementary school um, because you're interested in that and you want to teach them about money management at a young age. Um, that may be an informal kind of leadership experience, but those things are very important for the MBA programs. Um, yeah, so and, that's and, and then difference. there's the indirect benefit of those kinds of experiences, which is that they, they help to establish an, an informal network. You start to meet people who are connected to the industries that you're connecting to and and, and d- discussing with faculty opportunities that might be available beyond your college degree. And that can really get you a foot in the door in terms of your first job right out of college, um, which tends to be as you mentioned earlier, hugely important in the uh, MBA admission process. Um, are there any final thoughts that you want to share with our listeners before we, we go to a break? One final thought just for all of those seniors who thought that they were done with standardized tests, um, who are maybe interested in an MBA, it's definitely something that I would encourage students to consider within their college years because the GMAT, which is accepted widely by MBA programs, and the GRE, which is increasingly accepted um, as an alternative by MBA programs, those scores are good for five years. And so while you're still in that academic mindset, while you're still taking calculus or stats, you know, in my opinion, that's the time, perhaps senior year or even junior year, would be the time to consider taking on the GMAT or GRE before you're out in the workplace. Um, you'll find you have more time, and so that's just one forward-thinking tip that I have for those students who might want to consider an MBA to, to consider standardized testing while in college. 
That is, that's great advice. That's not something that I'd, I'd thought about that five-year uh, buffer, but that's that's really important, I think, for students to consider. Great. Um, thanks, Stacy, for coming to, to talk about MBA programs today. I really appreciate okay, it. Thanks for having me on the show, Ian. Absolutely. All right, folks, uh, when we come back, we're going to dive into MD programs uh, in medical school applications. So don't touch the radio dial. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the show. With the new year and the recent celebration of our 100th episode, we've got a new contest I want to share with all of you. Point and click to getintocollege.com slash 100. That's not the word 100, but the digits 100. To be entered into a drawing to receive 10 hours of college counseling with our team of admissions and finance experts. We want to help you celebrate our 100 episodes with us. I'm actually still in shock that we've been doing this for so long. Um, And this is a great way for us to get to know your students and help them through their application process. Winners will be announced on our show on January 26th. So hurry and get those submissions to us right away. Get into college.com forward slash 100. All right. I promised you a conversation on medical school admissions and how you can prepare for medical school programs, and I'm delighted to welcome my fellow Portlander and colleague, past and present, 
Abigail Anderson. Welcome to the show, Abigail. Hi, Ian. Thanks for having me. Of course. Now, medicine is very near and dear to your heart, or very near to your heart, um, and uh, because obviously your husband is is uh, in an MD program right now, and I think you and I both have lots of conversations, lots of conversations with high school students who are interested in pursuing a career in medicine. Um, and I just want to start with the question I think that we get most often, or version of a question we get most often, which is, um, I want to go to college for pre-med. What can I do now to get to put myself in the best position to be pre-med? Um, and let's, let's imagine that's coming from a, a high school junior. How do you usually field that question? Where do you begin with your response? I actually begin with extracurricular activities. Um, A lot of families expect me to begin with the academic side of the conversation. So, obviously, we all know medical school is an incredibly challenging, rigorous, intellectual experience. The sheer amount of knowledge that a student has to gain in the first two clinical or preclinical years, the book learning years, is a It's it's an astounding amount of knowledge. But I think what's really important for a student who's 15, 16, or 17 years old is to be able to pinpoint why they want to be in the medical field and that the medical field is really what they're looking for. And I don't think you can get the greatest answer to that, um, the most solid answer to that through extra chemistry classes or taking calculus. I think you get that answer best by going out into the medical community and volunteering in a clinic or working in a nursing home or shadowing a physician um, to actually see what their days are like. You know, what does it feel like to see 15 or 20 patients in a day and to only get to spend 20 minutes with each of those people? Um, What is the difference between being a nurse or a physician's assistant as opposed to being um, an internal medicine uh, specialist or a surgeon or um, maybe an OBGYN. So I actually Mm -hmm. would encourage high school students to start with that on-the-ground experience to determine their answer to the question, do I want to be in the health field? Yeah, I love I love your explanation there of why because I, I think usually, you know, when I get this question, we often talk about what needs to be done outside of, of school and, and things that will make a college application compelling. Um, and there are a lot of different ways to get involved outside of school, and we've we've talked about them on the show before. But what's really useful in terms of engaging with healthcare is establishing whether this is something you wanted to, because there are many many different ways that you can do incredible things in an intellectually rigorous or challenging program that don't necessarily have anything to do with medicine. And just because you are good at science and really smart um, doesn't mean that you have to be a doctor. Um, you know, we want our doctors and our healthcare providers to really love healthcare and, and caring for patients and engaging with patients. So answering that question for yourself as an individual is a really important step that you can take uh, in your high school career to try and get on the right path for medical school. Um, as far as the, the coursework is concerned, do you make any sort of differentiation in terms of how you would recommend an aspiring medical student 
would take their high school curriculum versus a student who's interested in, in any other field? I'm sure you've had this experience, Ian, but I find that so many families are surprised to learn that in the medical school admission process, your high school grades are never looked at. What you take in high school does not matter when you are applying to medical school. Um, It is your college-level courses that you are taking as prerequisite to enter the medical school graduate program that are used. Um, The Association of American Medical Colleges, a lot of people refer to this by its short name, the AAMC, they give a list of recommendations for what students need to take at the college level. And if you look at that list, you'll see it's a general list. They're not saying this is what you need to get into any medical school. They're saying here's what you need to do at most institutions. And that list is really short and really concise. And it's one full year of biology, one full year of physics, one full year of English, and then two full years of chemistry, which includes um, what some medical students will describe as the most dreaded class in undergrad, uh, (laughs) organic chemistry. Um, So if you're looking at that list, biophysics, English, and chem, I would turn to a high school student and say, why don't you try to get exposure to each of those three basic natural science fields in high school? So Mm -hmm. many high school students don't have to take physics in order to graduate from high school. So why don't you give yourself a leg up at the college level by at least taking physics for a year in high school? And then I would also say, continue with your humanities courses. Continue taking English, continue taking world language, continue taking the humanities. And that's because I think it's really important that you have the skills and abilities as a creative and analytical thinker and a strong writer to be able to perform well in any of those courses at the collegiate level. So, like we always say to high school students, continue with your five core academic courses throughout all of high school, and that's going to prepare you for college, which will in turn prepare you for graduate school, um, and particularly medical school. You and I both worked um, at Reed uh, in in admission, Um, and Reed doesn't have a a pre-med major. Um, We've got biology and chemistry and physics, you know, the traditional sciences, Mm -hmm. but but no explicit pre-med major. Um, Students from Reed do go on to medical school. Um, and many are very successful uh, in medical careers or in healthcare after after Reed. But we don't have a pre-med major. Um, and, you know, I, have, I know my answer to this, but did you, were you at all interested um, when you were reading applications to Reed as an undergraduate institution, um, whether a student was interested in pursuing medicine after their four years at Reed? Was that something that, mattered to you in the selection process that you were looking for, for as a positive or a negative as you were reading apps? Uh, it, was, uh, it was a point of interest, but I don't think it often weighed me to admit or to deny a student the fact that a student was interested in pre-medicine. And, and that's simply because I knew the likelihood of that student changing their mind once they got to college was so incredibly high 
that I never put a lot of weight while I was at Reed, um, sure. the liberal arts college, as you said, into what a student said their intended major was. Um, as you mentioned at the beginning of the call, my husband is in medical school. He's in a dual degree program, just finished a PhD in biomedical engineering, and is back in his third year of clinical studies. And we were with a group of medical students over the weekend talking about how many students who started with them in their pre-med cohort that actually went on to medical school. And this is a group of students from a wide range of institutions. Obviously, Mm -hmm. um, my husband went to a liberal arts school, but there were students there who went to um, religious universities, who went to state flagship schools. um, And the vast majority of them said, once you get to college, people discover other interests, they find other passions, um, and they, some of them also just realize they don't want to be in school for another decade. You know, medical school isn't just four more years of graduate school. You then have to go on to a residency, which are minimum two to three more years of training before you're a practicing physician. Um, right. So we're not just talking about four years of medical school. We're talking about maybe six to seven years, usually much, much more, um, in terms of training. And so for me, the idea that at 16, somebody has decided what they're going to do for the next 20 years of their life seems like a kind of risky point to make an admit a, an admission decision on. Um, right. Right. At the same time, though, if this was a student who was saying they wanted to do pre-med and was always getting C's and D's in science and math, I'd be worried about their ability to successfully achieve that dream at Reed. Um, and that right. would have been something we would have talked about. Definitely. That, that's and, and that was what I was thinking as well, is that, uh-oh, this, this student might want to do medicine, and that means they're going to have to take these very challenging science courses, you know, at Reed in our case, and can this student actually handle that, or is that going to be a real struggle for them? And, and that was more of a concern that we would have in terms of their success uh, at Reed, as opposed to, you know, seeing an interest in medicine as a, a positive factor in the application. And that didn't mean we're holding an interest in medicine against students, but just that it wasn't necessarily what we were looking for. Um, and, and the reason I asked that question is because I, I see a lot of students who are applying to liberal arts colleges or who are applying to universities that don't necessarily offer a pre-med major who are going to be studying something like science or something in the humanities uh, who write their personal statement about an interest in, in medicine. And I think that that's useful insofar as it tells us about what you care about, what your skills are, how you sort of look at the world. But the fact that you are interested in someday being a doctor is very rarely of, of interest um, to undergraduate institutions. It's definitely of interest to those eight-year combined BSMD programs, but it's not necessarily of interest to those those four-year institutions. Um, and, and I think that that's, that's information that's useful for students. Um, what about this concept of a pre-med major? Um, is that something that you tell, try and, and correct people on when they, they're looking for a pre-med major? How do you explain the concept of pre-med to parents and students? So... This is probably the question that you and I get the most. And I think my, my short answer is pre-med is not a valuable major for medical school applications. Um, when you're applying to medical school, your major does not matter. The fact that you have completed the prerequisites in order to enroll 
that's what matters. And again, those prerequisites for like a year in bio, a year in chem, a year of English, two years of um, a year of physics, two years of chem. Um, medical schools actually want to create just like undergraduate institutions where we work in, they want to create a really well-rounded student body that mm-hmm. is able to bring in a really wide-ranging and varying variety of perspectives to the medical school classroom. And I think that within the last 10 years or so, and I'm getting this from being around medicine a lot, medicine has really moved to patient-centered care and doctors are really more interested in using evidence-based information to make decisions about patient care. And so Mm -hmm. medical schools are looking to admit and enroll students who are going to be really thoughtful, caring physicians who care about and are better at more than just the raw science that goes into being a strong physician. So, again, I don't think major matters, but I think that you should be looking for colleges that have pre-health advising, um, that publish their medical school admission rates, and where you can get information about how they're going to support you through the process of applying to medical school. Right. And and that is an important piece. In fact, when you're looking at schools, if you think you've got a, a pretty solid intention of, of going to medical school later on, you do want to be aware of support services that are in place, um, the ability of that particular institution to help you through the process of applying or of, of filling your prerequisites, you know, the degree to which their uh, GPA is is um artificially uh, inflated or deflated. Uh-huh. You know, in the case of Reed, it was very hard to get A's. And so Reed GPAs don't look very good to medical school admissions programs, which, which is something that, you know, aspiring medical students need to know if, if they want to, you know, apply outside of a, a Reed curriculum. So, you know, there's, there's a lot to think about in terms of choosing where to go to college if you have an interest in medicine later on. But I think it's it's not often in the ways that students and families suspect. Um, and, and it tends to be more in how you get support and engagement with the medical field uh, in your extracurricular engagement as opposed to um, you know, the, the classes themselves. Um, any other thoughts or final sort of parting words for students if they're thinking about medicine uh, at this stage in their high school career? This is going to sound like a wild piece of advice, but it's one that I kept hearing over and over from various current and graduated medical students, which is all college grades matter in and out of those prerequisites. Your GPA, your raw GPA, like you were saying, Ian, is an incredible weeding out factor for medical school admissions. There are so many more people applying than there are space for in the, in the uh, medical school community. So all of your college grades matter in and out of the prerequisites. I would also really strongly advise students to do that research about the pre-health advising program. Um, one of the most interesting admission stats that people will um, they'll talk about when they're talking about undergrad advancement to medical school is the percentage of students who are admitted from an undergraduate college to medical school. So they might say, oh, well, you know, at Reed we would say 82, 83% of the students 
who apply to medical school from Reed are admitted. And that's a, and a really high number. It's actually phenomenal. But I think it's important to also be wary about those admission rates. And as you're doing your research, understand that not all colleges in the U.S. support all of their students who are interested in applying to medical school. And so what happens when you're applying to medical school, just like when you're applying to college, is your high school has to write a letter of recommendation for you. And this happens at medical school. Your college has to write an institutional letter of recommendation for you. And your college also has to assemble these individual letters of recommendation called a letter packet. And they have to submit those on your behalf to any medical school to which you're applying. And there are some schools in the U.S. that are known for selectively supporting students. Um, They don't support everybody who wants to apply. Uh, And so those schools might report very, very high medical school admission rates, but that's also because they're not supporting their weaker students. Um, They're effectively barring weaker students from applying to medical school by not writing them those committee letters or putting together that letter packet. And the AAMC website, um, that's, again, the Association of American Medical Colleges website, has a phenomenal amount of information for students in high school and college about how to, how to apply, and there's a ton of information about this part of the process on their website. So that's my final piece of advice. Perfect. Um, that's great. Yeah. Resources to use, and, and a final word of caution if you're looking at certain schools and statistics that you want to sort of look at what the underlying factors are involved in those. Abigail, thanks a lot for coming on the show and helping us to understand uh, medical school admission and what to do if you're interested in medical school. Have a great day. Thank you. When we come back, we're going to welcome my colleague Lori Peltier to the show to talk about financial aid for mid-year transfers. So don't go away. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Why? 
live Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the show. It's the new year, and that means it's time to start thinking about college visits for all you 11th graders. Just this week, Student Universe published a guest blog authored by yours truly on visiting colleges far from home. If you're trying to arrange a trip across the country to look at schools, I highly recommend that you go to their website, studentuniverse.com, and read the article on their blog. Uh, As a part of a promotion with College Coach, Student Universe is also offering $1,000 in airfare and $500 in spending money for students planning a visit far away from home. And because we want to make sure your college visits have staying power, we're adding a one-hour consult with one of our experts upon your return. You can find a link to this contest on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash college coach. There's a really terrific opportunity, and I'd highly recommend taking advantage. All right, great. Uh, My final guest today is Lori Peltier professional financial aid expert and radio show guest extraordinaire. Lori, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you. Hi, Ian. It's great to be here. Wonderful. So we are talking today about mid-year transferring. January is the time the spring semester is starting up at colleges, and some students might be starting a new semester at a new school. It's it's unusual, but definitely something that happens quite frequently. Uh, What financial implications can there be for students transferring mid-year? What should they be looking for? Uh, there's a couple things to keep in mind, and although, like you said, it's not a large population of students that transfer mid-year, it does happen for a variety of reasons, whether it's because a student wants to move closer to home, or they want a less expensive option, or they're just finding the right fit for them. You know, they tried out one school, it didn't work, so they're trying out another. So I think that the ramifications for the student really depend on whether the student's receiving financial aid or not, and if they attended school in the fall semester or not. So let's say a student is receiving financial aid uh, and they did attend a different school in the fall term. Um, What should they be aware of as they make this transition to their new school? Okay. I I think this is the most complicated um, of the scenarios because there's a short period of time between when the uh, fall semester ends and the spring semester starts. So a student might have four, maybe six weeks to get everything up and running from one school to another. The first and most important thing they need to do is add the new school to their FAFSA form. So when they applied for financial aid at their old school, they might not have listed the new school. So the new school needs to receive their FAFSA form. It's very easy to do. They go in online and they add the new school code to their FAFSA form. The financial aid office at the new school will receive that form. They also need to check with the new school to see if there's anything other than the FAFSA form that's required. Uh, not okay. all schools require the same thing, so they, they need to know that they're at a different school now and there may be different requirements. I think um, students don't realize that they will not receive their transcript from their old school if they still have an outstanding balance, even if it's $5 or a late library fee, you know, because they didn't return a book. Yeah. The school is not going to release their transcript. If they can't get their transcript, they can't get credit for the classes they already took. 
and uh-huh. then we might not be able to start. So, so making sure your bill is paid in full at the old school so you can get your transcript is important. Um, if they had loans at the first school, they need to notify the financial aid office that they want to cancel the spring disbursement of that loan so that the lender and the federal government and the school knows there's no spring amount for that loan for that student at that school, but they'll get a new loan at a different school. And that new loan can't be put in place if the other one is still hanging out there. Um, Gotcha. The other thing that happens regarding loans is that, as many of you know, when you finish school, you start a deferment process where you have six months before you start making payments on your loans. So the school that the student is leaving is going to notify the federal government that that student is no longer enrolled, and it's going to start that clock ticking for entering repayment. So the student might need to reach out to their loan servicer to tell them that they're enrolled in another school so that they don't enter repayment. So just making sure that they're in good standing on their loan, they're in the right um, status as being deferred. So it sounds like you want to make sure to add your new school to your FAFSA. You want to update your outstanding balance with your original school, your old school, and make sure you have no outstanding balance. And you've got to check with loans uh, to cancel the disbursement on the first or in the second semester and talk to your loan servicer about deferring payments. Correct. That's a lot to remember. Okay. <laughs> I told wow, you it was good. complicated. Yeah. It's yeah, unfortunately, I, I, our show is available as a podcast. It can be downloaded. You can come back and listen to this segment again and again. Make sure you check off all the boxes. Right. Um, does the grade level matter at all? Is it going to be different if we're talking about a freshman um, you know, versus a sophomore or a junior making this transfer? It can make a difference. And the way that a school determines your grade level is based on the number of credits you've accumulated towards your degree. So if you, at most schools, if you've earned 60 credits towards your degree, you can be called a junior. And as a junior in college, you can borrow $7,500 in a student loan for the year. But if they haven't accepted all your credits or they haven't seen your transcripts or your grades from that fall semester haven't come in yet, you might still be considered a sophomore and only be able to borrow the 6500 So that's where grade level matters and comes into play, and it ties into your loans and your transcripts and your that your balance has been paid off and all your classes for the fall semester have been graded and recorded. So we're talking about loans and, and that's one element of financial aid, but then off, often there are scholarships as well. Um, money that you're getting from either an institution or an outside scholarship. Are those going to be transferable to your new school? Oftentimes they are. If the scholarship was awarded from an outside source, let's say your parents' employer had a scholarship or the Lions Club in your hometown, the PTA at your high school. Uh, So depending on where the scholarship came from, if it came from an outside source, most likely it can be transferable, but you need to notify the sponsor of the scholarship to tell them that you're now enrolled in a new school and to send the check to the new school. Um, If the scholarship was sponsored by the college, that old college is not going to let you t- take their scholarship right. and go to a new school. That's a little crazy. But um, So you may be giving up that scholarship to go to the new school. However, some colleges do offer 
scholarships, merit-based scholarships for incoming transfer students. And that would be Mm. determined, you know, through the application process for that transfer student. We've talked a little in the past about the negotiation process when you've got um, some different offers for um, a student going in their freshman year to talk about different financial aid packages. Is negotiation something that these mid-year transfers are able to use in any way or are their hands sort of tied by the timeline? The, the timeline does impact it a little bit. You don't have a lot of time to make a decision or to go back and forth between schools, but um, it is something worth trying. If you have schools of similar caliber and you know where your academic standing is from your previous schooling, um, you know, all schools want better students, whether they're freshmen or transfers. Right. So I think they would be willing to negotiate and not lose a student over a couple thousand dollars uh, if it was a good student that they wanted in their student body. Gotcha. So maybe worth a shot. You, you, know, you don't know if that, that might be available. Um, any, any other suggestions that you have for, for students looking at a mid-year transfer? Well, I think um, housing is important to keep an eye on because uh, many colleges will have uh, very limited housing for transfer students. They reserve their housing for their upperclassmen and for the freshmen coming in. They may not have saved right. enough spots for transfers. Yeah. So it's usually based on when you deposit. So the earlier you deposit, the better chance you have of getting on that housing list and getting, you know, the best housing. And when a student enrolls in college, there's a lot of forms to fill out, such as health records, emergency contact. If you're going to be on payroll at the school, there's a lot of payroll documents to fill out. You'll have to do those all over again. Those are not transferable from one school to another. So there could be some extra paperwork. And I highly recommend if the new school offers a transfer orientation, please take advantage of it. It's a great way to meet other transfer students. You're a very small cohort for that school. It's not like the freshman class coming in where you're all going to be housed together and you're going to meet them in class. You might have a more difficult time meeting people as a transfer student, so taking advantage of a transfer orientation program is a very good idea to start off on the right foot. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us today for our show, Lori, and giving us a nice checklist for those mid-year transfers so that they're not leaving anything behind. I appreciate it. You're welcome. I want to thank all my guests for their contributions to our show today, from Lori to Stacy and Abigail. It's always great to have a reminder of the talented team we work with here at College Coach, and I hope you've enjoyed hearing from them as much as I have. Next week, I'll be back in the hosting chair to answer your listener questions alongside Kathy Ruby, who will be bringing the finance heat. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what you're interested in learning about, so keep those submissions coming. And as a final reminder, you can enter our 100th show contest at getintocollege.com forward slash 100. 100, and the Student Universe Contest uh, to get a subsidized college visit trip um, at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash college coach. All right, signing off now and returning to a frigid day in Portland. We'll see you all next week. Happy New Year to all of our listeners. Hope you make it a good one. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 